0: Hey, open up the book of, to the book of Hebrews and we'll be picking back up where we left off. <clears throat> I'm going to keep some water next to me pretty close. <coughs> Hopefully it won't become too much of a disturbance for you. In Hebrews, we started off a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2 and we took only the first four verses. And if you remember, in chapter 1, it talked about the superiority of Jesus, his deity. In chapter 2, in the very first four verses, it gave us our first warning of one of many that we will see through the book of Hebrews. And that first warning was about drifting. If you take a look there into verse 1, therefore we must... Give the most, the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Yes, it is a possibility as you start in this relationship with Christ that you can be deceived or distracted or to realize. What you were anchored to, the little knot came undone, and somehow, some way, you have just thinking you're just having a great time in life as a Christian, and you're floating down a river heading for uh, the, the dam, and you're sitting there just having a great time, thinking we're just fine, I'm a Christian, I'm just totally fine. And you came and studied and realized, no, you're not fine. Because if you're not continuing to stay anchored with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and continue to seek and worship him and praise him and follow him daily, you are going to be at great risk with a warning called drifting. And you will then find yourself drifted way too far, and you're going to look at each other and go, What? just happened no it didn't just happen this has been going on in your life for quite some time and if you stop and you open up your eyes you will hear that God sent many of his your brothers and sisters to warn you that something was not right but you pridefully ignored all the warnings every Sunday you were convicted you ignored it every time you were around your family members they warned you about something's not right You'd have no idea. Don't worry about me. There was a tremendous warning. Today, as we finish up chapter two, we're going to see that uh, we're going to see um, (coughs) Jesus' his uh, humanity. We studied in chapter one his deity today and his humanity. In verse 5, it says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Now, this verse 5 speaks to the, the kingdom age or the thousand year reign of Jesus that is coming. And during that period of time, he makes it very clear, the writer to the Hebrews, that the angels were never designed to be in control of this dominion over this world in the past, present, or will they? They will not be in control or dominion over this world, and even in the thousand-year reign, it was never God's design. They were just tools used by God to, to deliver a messages or the word of God or message to people. So many times, we fake focus on the messenger of who God is using versus God himself and that is a great danger and angels is one of those challenges because uh, uh, we put such an emphasis on things such as spiritual things like uh, angelic beings that that becomes a very much a distraction and it will cause you to drift away from Jesus in 1 Corinthians 6, three says, you and I will judge the angels in the end times. So therefore, there should be no reason whatsoever that we should be exalting angels like we see in society today. Society exalts angels all kinds of ways, through little relics and all kinds of things you can buy in the stores and everything. And, and I've got my little angel with me and I've got my little angel around my neck. And, but, That that someone doesn't understand. They're just a tool, a messenger of God for his people. It's it's about worshiping him and not the angel. In verse 6, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? This starts in this section here addressing a psalm, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8 specifically. I would probably actually go back and have you go back and read verse 3 through 8 because that's really the good context here. Because in Psalm 8, from which the writer is quotes from, it's speaking about David saying, When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon the stars which you have ordained which is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him so picture young David the shepherd David out in the middle of the field he's sitting there and it's as clear as it can be and you can see the magnificence of the of the galaxies David is saying in his psalm here I look at the incredible what you've created and, and, and the magnitude of the universe and the canopy of the stars and the moon and the sun and all of these things you have so intricately placed in the sky above me. How could you, a God of a universe who created this, be anything, even think about looking at that me, this little speck on this earth? That's what David is saying here in the psalm. He felt so small compared to the universe that he was staring into and realized God is magnificent and just worthy to be praised. In verse 7, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that... He put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In chapter 1, the writer to the Hebrews clearly demonstrated from the Scriptures the deity of Jesus Christ. And in his superiority over all the angels, over the law, over Moses, over the prophets, he is superior to all. And it made it very clear in chapter 1. Now he's going to demonstrate for us the rest of this chapter 1, his humanity. From the scriptures and apply the implications of Jesus' humanity and how that is so important ...for you and I to understand why he had to take on human flesh. It is biblically wrong to think Jesus as merely God or merely man. That's not biblical truth. It is wrong to think of him as half God and half man. That is not biblical truth. It is wrong to think of him as man on the outside and God on the inside... That is not biblical truth. The Bible clearly teaches Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that a human nature was added to his divine nature and both natures existed in one person and his name is Jesus Christ. That is biblical truth. Anything outside of that is not. It's false teaching and you must be aware God has not only put works of his fingers. He placed the sun and he placed the moon. He placed the stars and he orchestrates it all. But he also with his hand, he controls the world that we live in and his subjection to man. It's in control of man. In other words, man was given an awesome, incredible, cosmic responsibility when God created Adam and Eve. But what happened? What happened was, is man crowned with glory, incredible responsibility, had endless opportunity in the Garden of of Eden, but man blew it and has lost it all. Thus the world which man was put in charge over the land was turned over to the one who deceived him in the Garden of Eden. We see here he has has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. God never gave angels the kind of dominion man originally had over the earth that we see in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26-26. Through 30. Angels do not have dominion over the world, nor will they ever have dominion over the world. In the quotation that I mentioned in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, shows both the smallness of man in the relationship to God and his creation. The dominion of God gives man, even though he is little lower than man. And he also, we see here in the scripture, he left nothing that is not put under him. The writer to the Hebrews is making a very important emphasis to you and I. in the fact that the point that God put all things, not some things, but all things under subjection to human beings. This shows that Jesus must be human because God gave dominion to humans and Jesus is exercising that authority in his humanity. But now, we see here in the scripture, but now we do not see all things put under him. By all appearance, we're looking around this world right now and saying, it is clearly something's not fulfilled here in this Psalm verse 8 all of the appearance, the promises that this psalm has seems to be unfulfilled promise. We do not see that all things are subject to man. But remember, Jesus is coming back to take that which he purchased with his own blood. Satan is presently exercising squatter rights. And he's having a great time trying to bring hell on earth while we live. But he is Causing such trauma in this world because of the fact that he has his squatter rights right now because Jesus has not come back to bring him under control. Even though God is in control and Satan can't do anything without his permission, we see that many people try to blame the Father for the challenges that are happening in this world today. But you have to remember, because we know what the truth is, it's not the Father's fault that there is pestilence and disease and all these fires and climate changes and all these other things that people want to blame God on. Man is at fault because of the sin of man that brought about the change in this world back in the Garden of Eden but everything changed in the garden of gethsemane did it not that's when every that garden is everything in regards to our future because it's when that change took place that our lord and savior went to the cross he purchased this land back he is he is able to open up the scroll in verse 9 but we see jesus that is a really important verse. We see Jesus. We don't focus on angels. We don't focus on the devil. and We don't focus on what's going on in this world. We see Jesus, who, has, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He is God's answer to man's dilemma. Do do you realize that? Man says, I have a dilemma. We know the answer. His name is Jesus. What's the dilemma about this world problem with the spread of of, um, disease? Jesus Why? Because the promise is fulfilled in Jesus, who is Lord over all. Through Jesus, man can regain the dominion originally intended for Adam. We see that promise in Revelation 1.6. We see that promise in Revelation 5.10. And we see that promise in Matthew 25, verse 21. When our Lord was here on earth, he exercised that lost dominion. He had dominion, and we see it in the scripture. He exercised that dominion over fish, over fowl, over beasts, over domestic beasts. We see while he was on this earth, he had control over all of it. Even he could place a coin in a fish's mouth to give to someone to pay their taxes. Now, God is in control. Just read the scriptures and realize the one you follow is in absolute control and on dominion over this world. We have nothing to fear. Jesus regained man's lost dominion. Today everything is under his feet. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20. Through 23, I highly encourage you to read that. Who was made a little lower than the angels. He means he took on human flesh. He took on his humanity which is lower than the angels. This promise of dominion could only be fulfilled through the hum- hum- uh, humanity su- uh, the humility, I should say, humility, suffering, and death of Jesus. The Son of God defeated the evil that Adam brought into the world, which was death. We see that in Romans 5.12. God gave man dominion over the earth, but man forfeited his power to take that dominion because of sin. Now, he gave over his power. It did not give away his right or his authority, only God gives that right and authority, and that is still applies to man today. The principle of death took away the power for man to be able to do what God called him to do. But Jesus came through his humanity and suffering and defe- defeated the power of death and made possible the fulfillment of God's promise that humans will have dominion over the earth. And fulfilled through Jesus our own dominion and rule as believers with him. We see that promise in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4. But notice here at the end of verse 9 something very important to take note of. By the grace of God might taste death for everyone. We see this because this reference here is regarding to the position what we, they referred to back in those days as the cupbearer. When a king was going to have a drink, he always had a cupbearer always by his side. And then the wine person would pour the drink, the cupbearer would take a sip prior to giving it to the king. Why? Well, if the king was a little, you know, critical of the the quality of the wine that he was about to drink, you know, maybe the winemaker may have slipped something in there called poison to kill the king. So, of course, the cupbearer took the sip. So if there was poison, the cupbearer died, not the king. How would you like to live your life every day before you take a drink? You have to have a cupbearer take a sip for you. Jesus is our cupbearer. Which is why we, uh, he prayed in Matthew 26 verse 39 in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh my father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is taking the cup of wrath that God is pouring out on mankind because of the sin of the world. And Jesus said, I will take that sip. I will taste death. Now notice there, Taste death for everyone, not some select group of people, but for everyone. God came to die for everyone, not to some select. And Jesus' tastes of the cup of wrath, the sin of the world, and that was fulfilled there on the cross. In verse 10, we see verse 10 through 13, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bring many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. The word perfect there in the Greek here means complete. So the captain of their salvation is complete through sufferings. So Jesus is not only the last Adam, But he is also the captain of our salvation. He is our leader. He's the one that gives you directions. We follow the captain. He opens the only way to follow him. That is what it's saying here. I am the only way. And you must follow me. That's the only way for you to be saved. Christ gave up his glory to become man. He regained his glory when he arose and ascended to heaven. Now he shares that glory with all who trust him for salvation. Why? So that he can bring many sons to glory. Why? Because it was for it was fitting. It was more than just necessary, but it had to his humanity, he had to take on flesh and he had to come to this earth for us to be saved. It wasn't one of those, mm, maybe it sounds good kind of a moment. No, it was fitting. It was perfect and complete for God's uh, satisfaction for the sin of this world. It was fitting for the sovereign God, for whom all things and by whom all are all things, to be made perfect through sufferings in the task of bringing many sons to God. So it was fitting for Jesus to save us at the cost of his own agony so that we could be saved. God's love for us had to show itself in sacrifice and God could not sacrifice unless he added humanity or his incarnation to his deity and suffered on our behalf. The captain of their salvation, the leader of, the, the one we must follow. There is nothing lacking in the deity of Jesus. Yet until he became man and suffered, God never experienced suffering. And he had to experience suffering to be able to relate for you and I. The point is that it was fitting for the father to do this in the sense that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We see that in fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53.10. And to do it for the sake of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That means you and I. He did it for you and I to have salvation. In verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We see here that for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. That means therefore we are sanctified by one. Who has been sanctified. We are all the same human family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call you and to call me brethren or sister. He is not ashamed whatsoever for calling us brethren or sister in a relationship. That means you and I. He could not be our brother or sister or our brother unless he was also human like us. That's why his humanity was so important. If he did not take on humanity, he could not be our brother. That means he could not represent or have that relationship with him like we do today. We can be one with Jesus not because of anything we've achieved but because he chose to identify with us in his humanity. And he was not ashamed to call them brethren. The writer here in the next few verses writes um, and speaks to a messianic message to us of Jesus being the Messiah. We'll see it in Psalm twenty-two, 22. We'll see it in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 12. He's saying, I, dec- I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So the writer here to the Hebrews quotes uh, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two from the ancient uh, Septuagint, Reminds us that Jesus sang, singing worship to his father among his church as his brethren. Let me say that again because most people don't understand this. When we gather together at the Ladies and Men's Bible Studies and we sing a few worship songs, do you realize that Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah is right there with you singing to his Father at the same time we're singing to him as our Lord and, and our Father? You know, on Wednesday nights, as we gather here in midweek service, and we're worshiping, we're worshiping our Lord, but our Lord is right there with us, worshiping the Father at the same time. Today, as we worship, sometimes you get ah, worship, but I don't, like, don't know if I like it or not. I don't like that song; it's too modern. You know, you get your mind is absolutely not worshiping in truth and song when you get your head into that kind of a thing. You need to get your head understanding that you're you're worshipping a Savior who's right there with you, worshipping the Heavenly Father, and you're worried about you like the song or not. It's incredible, people don't understand it. So you've got to get your heads, when it comes time to worshipping in song, that you're worshipping right alongside your Savior who worships the Father. You must get your mind in uh, worshiping and worshiping spirit and truth in heart in mind. It's guide to connect, my brothers and sisters. If not, you're missing out on this wonderful experience of worshiping our Heavenly Father. You must. You must keep practicing, keep just worshiping and getting the distractions out so that you don't miss out on a sweetness with your Lord standing right next to you as he worships his Father as well. Christ is united to us, and we are united to him, and we are spiritually one. In verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here, I, here am I and the children whom God has given me. The phrase here that's quoted from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, shows how precious Jesus' people are to him. Not only are believers his brethren, but we see in this verse that we're also his children. If Jesus Christ had not come to earth... And taken on his humanity, man, he would not take us from earth and share in the glory in heaven. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection must come together. They all lead to his glory. You're not one or the other, you can't separate that. It is all one. In verses 14 through 16, Inasmuch when the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all... we're all there, a lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So what did Jesus do for you and for me? Do you, did, you, did you make note of this? This is critical. As a believer, do you see what Jesus has done for you and me by taking on his humanity? we see that angels cannot die. Jesus did not come to save or aid angels. He came to save humans. And only through his death could he defeat Satan. He himself likewise shared in the same. For Jesus to truly fulfill the role as the I'll call the elder brother, for the family of the redeemed, he had to take on flesh and blood. He had to enter into the prison to free the captives free. That's you and me as a believer. The word destroy does not mean to wipe out completely for it's very obvious satan is still having is still around and very busy at work trying to destroy people's lives the word means here to render inoperative it means to have no effect that means satan is not destroyed but he is disarmed by our lord Remember, the final authority of Satan, or of death, is in the hands of God. Satan can do only that which is permitted by God. But because Satan is the author of sin, and sin brings death, Romans 6.23, in this sense, Satan exercises power in the realm of death. How does he do that? Well, Jesus called him a murderer. He has all kinds of ways of trying to get people to even kill themselves. But Satan uses the fear of death as a very terrible tool or weapon to gain control over the lives of people. His kingdom is of one of darkness and death. Prior to you giving your life to Jesus Christ, you may acknowledge it or not, but the Bible is true. You feared death. And because you feared death, you value your life way, way too much. You will do whatever it takes for self-preservation. You won't, if you could avoid absolutely no pain you would if you could have uh, avoid any inconvenience in your life you would why because Satan works his way in there to make you feel a certain way or bring terror into you uh, the fact that there's a potential you could die but once you give your life to Jesus Christ That you have been set free from. Satan no longer will or can mess with you to cause you to fear death. You don't fear death whatsoever. Why? Because you are with great anticipation for you to be in the presence of the Lord anytime. Every day you say, Lord, perhaps today you're taking me home. You're going to come for us all, or you're going to come just for me. But either way, I'm ready to be in your presence. There is nothing in my life that I value in self preservation at all that would keep me from being in your presence in heaven. And as a believer, and you understand the scriptures, that should be your mindset. But the problem is, there's just so many Christians today. They they don't know the word of God. And so they live daily in fear of death. Every day. And it just quenches the spirit working through your life. It just quenches the spirit. And you do not have the joy of the Lord who is your strength. You don't understand his mercies are new every morning because you're afraid of what the next thing's happening. You don't have peace, his peace filling you because you've filled your mind with other people talking heads or Satan getting in your head somehow trying to convince you you need to be self-preservation. It's all about you. But we see here in the scripture, Jesus said it's all about me. And I have taken away the power of death. And Satan cannot use that against his people as a child of God. He didn't come to save angels, but he did come to give aid to the seed of Abraham. Jesus became a Jew, a part of the seed of Abraham, even though during that period of time the Jews were a despised and hated race, and yet the Lord, our Lord, came and became a Jew anyway. So that his humanity could fulfill the prophecy and the future that we see in the scripture. Finally, we finish here verse 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted. This is very 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 important verses my brothers and sisters if you do not know these verses please memorize them. Notice here therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. He might be merciful and faithful high priest. We see here Jesus were not like us. He could not be our high priest. Representing us before the Father and making atonement or uh, propitiation. Propitiation means full satisfying payment for the sin of the world. Jesus when he took that cup when he went to that cross when he died and suffered he paid your price for your sin an absolute complete payment that was fully satisfying to the father for your sins and it was paid for once enough for all neither the deity nor is humanity, is negotiable. Anyone who tells you that Jesus is not fully God and not fully human, you're talking to a false teacher, you must walk away. Don't listen to any of that teaching. If we diminish either his deity or his humanity, Jesus is unable to save us. That's how critical it is. But we knew what it was to be, he knew what it was to be a helpless baby. He understands what it means to be a growing child. He understands what it means to be a maturing adolescent. He understands the experiencing of weariness, of absolute physical tiredness. He understood hunger and thirst. He knew that it was to be, he was to be despised and to be rejected. He understands what it means to be lied to and about the false accusations against him. He experienced physical, physical suffering and death. All of this was part of his training for his heavenly ministry as our high priest. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament wore a breastplate. And all of the stones were on that and the shoulders were the names of the tribes of Israel. It represented that the high priest carried the burden and the weight and the sympathy and the love and the passion for the entire all 12 tribes of Israel. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, did not wear a breastplate, but the... The hole in his side and the cross across his back and all of the crown on his head. Was a perfect example of our compassion, merciful and faithful high priest. And he did it. Why? For the propitiation of your sin. For your sin. And this is why I think is so critical, my brothers and sisters, in these two verses. Notice he says, he himself has suffered being tempted. Some wonder if Jesus was really tempted. After all, he's God. How could he be tempted if he's God? He could not sin because he's God. So his temptation could not be real, right? Have you ever heard that excuse? But the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear and insists that not only was Jesus' temptation real, but it was so real that he suffered under the temptations. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Think about it. You're tempted... And you're tempted and you push it off. And you push off the temptation. You don't fall to it. You're not conquered by it. You keep pushing up. But eventually the temptation gets so strong. You say the only way you feel you can get relief from that temptation. Is by committing the sin. But Jesus never did get conquered by temptation. He took the temptation upon him, built upon, built upon, built upon, built upon, built upon upon his whole life, but never fell to temptation. Tremendous weight. Jesus knew temptation of power. He understood the temptation of pain. He knew the temptation of riches and the temptation of poverty. He knew the temptations of popularity and the temptations of rejection. He knew the temptations of being a boy and the temptations of being a man. He knew temptations that can come from his friends, his closest friends, or the temptations from his, his enemies that watched him. He knew temptation from his family and he knew temptation from strangers. There is no temptation that he did not be tempted of. And that's why we see in the verse he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Because Jesus added his humanity to his deity and experienced human suffering He is able to help us in temptation. He knows what we are going through regardless of the temptation you are going through today. What happens when we, who have been saved, we've been saved but are tempted to sin? What happens this is why I think this, these verses are cr- so critical for someone here tonight, for today. The scripture is clear. Jesus stands right there, looking at your moment and that moment of temptation, and he says, I am right here ready to help you. Just call upon my name. Do you hear me, my brothers and sisters? Do you know how many people I spend time with helping them through the after effect of falling to the temptation into sin and destroying their lives? And I ask, did you call out Jesus's name? He's right there. The scripture's right here. He's right there. He's he knows exactly what you're dealing with. He wants you to just call his name. He's going to give you a way of escape. It's absolute truth why didn't you take it why didn't you take it was the sin that good absolutely not because it just destroyed your life it just happened pastor, no it didn't the scripture is very clear it started in your mind a long time ago And you did not deal with the temptation. You did not squish it. You did not run from it. And you certainly did not ask the Savior to come and help you because he's right there waiting to help you. He was tempted when he was on earth, but no temptation ever conquered him because he has defeated every enemy and he is able to give us the grace that we need to overcome temptation. We can find victory in the midst of temptation and come out better from being tempted. Jesus did not lose anything from being tempted He only gained in glory and sympathy and ability to help His people. In the same way, we do not have to lose anything when we are tempted. Just because you're tempted does not mean you've sinned. It's only when you follow through with that temptation is now become the sin. But from a human point of view, it would seem foolish for God to become man. Why would God become man? Why would he do that? Become lower than the angels. Yet it was this very act of grace that made possible our salvation. We sit here today and worship our God because God was willing to take on humanity. From a rejecting world. To make it possible for our salvation and all that goes with it. And when Jesus Christ became man, he did not become inferior to angels. For in his humanity and in his, this human body, he accomplished something that angels could never accomplish. And at the same time, he made it possible for us to share in his glory. And let me end here with this. Jesus is not ashamed to call, his, call us his brothers and sisters. The question is, are we ashamed to call him Lord? Are you ashamed to call him Lord? If the answer in your mind right now is, I don't call him Lord then I pray that you will repent. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, today's the day of your salvation. And maybe you did, but you've walked away from him for years. And you've lived your life like you're in control, like you're Lord of your own life. Today's the day you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ.